Hey, before we get into the show, uh, we want to tell you guys if you like podcasts and cool podcasts and smart podcasts, if you like that, I don't know why you're listening to our podcast, but yeah, seriously. Um, you are definitely going to want to check out BuzzFeed's newest and smartest podcast. It's from our politics team here. It's called No One Knows Anything, which if you don't know a lot about politics, guess what? Neither do the people who literally professionally do this for a living. It's hosted by uh, one of our politics reporters, Evan McMorris Santoro. Um, he's fantastic, and you're going to like it. Hey, kids. Hey. When I say hey, kids for, for once, I'm actually referring to hey, kids. We have gotten a lot of Really good emails from teenagers lately. Yeah, even though you're breaking the number one rule of the show, which is don't be a teenager uh, and listen to it. I mean, the worst thing we do is, like, drop a few F-bombs, right? Yeah, or, like, graphically describe, like, weird sex stuff. Hello, and welcome to BuzzFeed's Internet Explorer. I am Ryan Broderick. Hi, and I'm Katie Natopoulos. Um, today, we have on two amazing guests, uh, Naila Orr from BuzzFeed and Doreen St. Felix from MTV News. That's right. We're going to be talking about the world of memes as it pertains to blackness and how that is part of the internet and also fucked up. We'll figure out everything by the end of this. We have a, a kind of crazy update to a story that we covered on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. That's right. Grumpy Cat is dead. <laughs> um, we had on uh, Brandon Miller, a.k.a. Joanne the Scammer. And there's a crazy update that's been going on with the Joanne the Scammer Twitter account. So for those of you who may not remember, didn't tune in, Joanne the Scammer is this amazing comedy character created by this guy named Brandon. It's a Twitter and, face and Instagram account, and the premise is that Joanne is this woman who is a scammer. I, I feel like I'm sound like a crazy person saying that, but she's a scammer. She's a messy bitch who lives for drama. Yeah, ask the character Joanne. She's making all these like wild statements, like I'm into wine forgery and art fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuff that's like, you know, it's just ludicrous to say, and it's somehow so funny. This is the the video of the classic Joanne line. Hey, girl, I just wanted to let you girls know that I'm a real messy bitch, a liar, a scammer. I love robbery and fraud. I'm a messy bitch who lives for drama. So Joanne the Scammer got scammed. Wow. <laughs> the scammer had become the scammer. By an actual scammer. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Because Brandon Miller is a perfectly nice, non-scamming individual, but an actual real scammer person, basically hacked. I use hacked in quotation marks. It wasn't like a, a hack. It was more like a social engineering phishing. Right. Um, basically, like, hacked his Twitter account, took it over, tried to hold it for ransom for $500. Eventually, uh, Twitter stepped in because, you know, it's Twitter's job to restore people's accounts if they get hacked and the account has been restored uh joanne is back to her former glory everyone check her out at joanne prada on twitter friend of the show yes and like really really hilarious person We have two guests with us. We have Naila Orr, uh, who is a BuzzFeed fellow. Hi, Naila. How are you? Hey, Katie. And we also have Doreen St. Felix, who is a writer for MTV News. Hi, Katie. And hi, Ryan. Hi, Naila. Hi, Doreen. Uh, Doreen, is it okay if I just refer to you as Kurt Loder for the rest of this interview? <laughs> <laughs> 
So both of you separately have written uh, a couple months apart really interesting essays about what happens on the internet when black people are creating memes or inadvertently become a meme and how the sort of like gears and wrenches of the internet like fuck this up and spit it out in a kind of bad way. You both have like very thoughtful looks at sort of how the meme sausage gets made and how the, the, the black culture that's attached to these memes gets completely stripped away and no one gets any credit and it's sort of like a disaster. So Doreen, I want to sort of start with what you had written uh, a couple months ago for The Fader about how these sort of black teenagers are creating these memes that eventually go on to make money for someone, but it's never the person who created it. Yeah. So one of the examples you gave is Peaches Monroe, who came up with the phrase on fleek, uh, which then like goes on to sell a thousand pancakes, right? <laughs> we in this beach, finna get crunk. Abraz on fleek, the fuck? So with the case of Peaches uh, Monroe, she was 16 years old when she was, you know, she had a Vine account like every other teen has. And sure. um, she looked really good. <laughs> as she is wont to be. Yep. And, you know, she comes up with this like little, you know, the vine that we just heard and she describes her eyebrows as being on fleek. And I think that it's important to, when we're talking about, you know, memes and the relationship to black culture online, blackness online, to remember that these things have basically been, you know, created from time immemorial. So, there's a chain, I, I describe it in the piece, of basically transit with this phrase on the internet. So initially, she makes this fine, and it kind of stays within the com community. is kind of like a complicated word to use when describing black people on the internet. But let's say, like, mostly black people are the only people who see this fine initially. Mm -hmm. And so, like... You know, people make memes, they start to use it in their own language and their tweets on Instagram and all these things. And then the basically it's like a flare gets sent out and corporations and white celebrities, Ariana Grande is one example of it, start mm. to see what's happening and they see the power in that and they see the relevance in it. Mm. And I think the just deep desire to be culturally relevant um, is what drives what ends up being a really heartbreaking story that an innovator in any other context who would have been given credit, who would have been given a paycheck, damn Daniel is actually something that mm -hmm. we can talk about if we want to see the difference in between what happens when white teens do something online versus black teens. Mm -hmm. He was on Ellen in about 15 seconds after that <laughs> meme came out. Less than 15 seconds. Right. And then Ellen gave them a check for $10,000, I mm -hmm. think, and then... You know, it goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I talked to Peaches, you know, I DM'd her. She was like kind of surprised that a reporter wanted to connect with her because no one else mm -hmm. had in a way that was beyond just like, how are you so brilliant? How did you come up with this pithy phrase? You know, I wanted to actually see <laughs> uh -huh. what the past two years have been like for her. There was a sense of pride, obviously, but then also kind of like, yeah, you know what? When I asked her the question, have you gotten paid? She was like, no, I haven't gotten paid, and that sucks. Yeah. I mean, the idea that black teen slang becomes part of culture at large has been going on for a long time, but I think because of the internet, it's this unusual case where you can actually pinpoint, here's the one person who started totally. it. Totally. If you wanted to give credit, yes, there is one person right here you could yeah. give credit to, and you're not. 
I feel like most viral things, people don't sit down and be like, time to go viral today. (laughs) (laughs) I want to spin it over uh, to Naila because your piece talks about this in in a different way, which is sort of the idea that white Americans sort of assume that anything black people do on the internet is open source and like they can just Ooh. do whatever they want with it. And your piece goes through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the piece you wrote for Buzzfeed black trauma remix for your clicks, you talk about the phenomenon of black people on local news, usually around like horrifying events being interviewed. And then they're literally appropriated and turned into, you know, remixes and songs. Let's play a clip of the, the famous Antoine Dodson. And just while you're listening to it, think about the fact that this man is literally trying to tell people about the threat of sexual violence looming over his neighborhood and uh, like a, a bunch of kids on YouTube just decided to make it into a song. Well, it's interesting because uh, the phenomenon was really popular a few years ago, and there was a particular group of people who are known for this type of remixing, and it's the Gregory Brothers. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a group of three uh, white family, uh, three brothers and one sister, and they are known for remixing Antoine Dotson's interview into a platinum-selling single, uh, Bed Intruder, and they remixed Charles Ramsey's interview as well. The Charles Ramsey interview happened... In May 2013, in response to the Ariel Castro kidnapping victims, and Charles Ramsey had helped to rescue these women. And the the one of the person outside the Ariel Castro, the woman being kidnapped, that's sort of the inspiration for what became the theme song to the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt show, uh, mm-hmm. where the premise is also it's women who were kidnapped for a long time being finally released, and uh, you know on the local news there's a black man saying some phrase that becomes songified. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. Um, the Gregory brothers were actually hired on the strength of their history of remixing. Mm-hmm. So, right. so um, they oh, so they they wrote that song for the Kimmy well, Schmidt show, or Jeff Richman, I think, who's okay. the, the composer for that show. He wrote it, but they were hired to remix it, ah. and their remix actually garnered like four million hits <laughs> um, and went viral itself. In your opinion, like, why do you think uh, these moments of black trauma, as you as you so like expertly put it, um, when they're when they're done this way? Why do you think they travel so fast? And why do you think that it continually is this source of entertainment? I don't, I don't know. It's, a, it's such a weird thing. That it, always, it always happens the same way. Like, why do you think it keeps happening? Well, I think in American culture, we're sort of um, used to laughing at black pain. And I think historically it's been an issue, um, particularly with like blues music as like, you know, I referenced in my piece and which Doreen also talks about in her piece, um, which is that like, the intellectual property or even just the experiences of black people are sort of um, have been turned into pop music and and this sort of um, celebrated communal thing. Um, so I think what we, we are used to in this culture of sort of stripping black people of their humanity and their context and just sort of seeing them as instruments for our pleasure and our entertainment. I think what you said about the, the blues being sort of this like, I mean, this does seem like, a hundred years has been going on of like some black created cultural product then becoming 
detached from its original meaning and also commodified and commercialized by white people. And one of the examples you gave is the song Hound Dog, which everyone knows is the like upbeat Elvis Presley song. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. It was originally like a sort of really sad blues song, you know, about pain. It's a complicated question to ask, you know, obviously we can center this conversation around commodification, but another thing that we can talk about is who are the laughers in this scenario? They're not unilaterally white. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I do see black creators like comedians or people that we can think about in this case. We can also think about musicians, even somebody like Beyonce with the release of Lemonade, who kind of twists the idea that trauma should be venerated and only looked at with this, you know, solemn, you know, mm. sad respect. Sometimes it's like, yeah, shit is so messed up that you need to laugh at it or you mm. need to take this scenario like Antoine Dodson and put it in this church context so that people, you know, can have their sway, do their one, two step. And complicate the way you know complicate the compartments that we usually think emotions are placed in it's difficult to kind of say it's not just that black people are creators and white people are consumers in this scenario it's much more complicated than that it reminds me Nora Ephron has this analogy of if you slip on a banana peel then everyone laughs at you but if you tell the story about how you slipped on a banana peel then it's your story and it's funny and you can laugh about it mm -hmm. and I feel like that's maybe kind of so, I mean, mm -hmm. Antoine Dodson definitely embraced that this happened and he, you know, he performed on the BET Awards with the Gregory Brothers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had this weird sort of viral celebrity for a brief moment. I actually met him years ago. <laughs> um, oh, I can, in my research, I've seen that the Gregory Brothers have sort of stopped this mm -hmm. songifying thing. Yeah. And I think that they kind of... Um, you know, were responding to criticism that they faced about what they were doing. And I think they shifted gears. Um, just responding to um, Doreen's comment about, like, um, tragedy not being so solemn. Um, I, that's a great area that I sort of discovered when I was doing research because a lot of these viral videos were coming across my timeline. And my timelines are, like, mostly black. Mm -hmm. And so people are laughing at Hazel London and uh, Antoine Dotson and Charles Ramsey and... Um, so, and this is in the black community, but I also think that there's a difference between something like Lemonade, which is a piece of art and a piece of content, you know, that was sort of calcul calculated, mm -hmm. um, and something like uh, Antoine Dotson speaking off the cuff about a tragedy. Like, that wasn't originally content, it was just him speaking right. about his experience. So that is one slight difference that I've seen. Well, I have a question mm -hmm. for both you guys, because I feel like your both your pieces sort of have this at the core of it, which is, do you think a lot of this stems from an inability for copyright law and intellectual property law to keep up with the way black Americans use the internet? I mean, because you saw the same thing actually, um, you know, the blues allegory is so fascinating because like blues musicians are basically being mined for content. And then by the time, you know, the, 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 the art had been appropriated, there was very little they could do legally to like get recognition back. And I feel like it's almost happening all over again on the internet, but now the internet has so many more diverse ways to have your shit stolen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and this is open to both you guys. Like, what do you think about what needs to happen in that way? What, what can we do to make it better? So the, from what I've seen, the intellectual property law 
realm is extremely divided on the issue. So the lawyer that I talked about for my piece was a black woman, and she is one of the innovators kind of going back in both the legal history and also the text of the law itself to say, here are the implicit biases that have been, you know, established, and here's how to undo them. I really do think that it's incumbent on legal scholars to catch up with what's happening on the internet. If scholars are not willing to just like get in the muck of what is the internet and try to figure out what's happening, then there's no way for the law to change. But I do think it, I think it's like a, it's an emergency of a legal problem. And and then uh, on the flip side, like Nayela, like for instance, when I was reading your piece, I, I kept thinking about this really weird thing. And this is, this is super weird and that it, it fits into this conversation, but what, I swear. Was it whether Sonic and Knuckles kiss? It's definitely <laughs> whether Sonic and Knuckles kiss. No, no, no. So when I was working out of the BuzzFeed Japan office a couple months ago, I was learning about copyright law in Japan. And for uh, your piece, it centers on the idea of basically, you know, you go on you go on the news and then they interview you and then someone takes your clip and they make millions and millions of dollars with it. In Japan, you own the copyright of your own likeness in any form that it shows you show up in. So like hmm. in Japan, like someone like Antoine Dodson would have complete copyright over anything using his voice or likeness. And do you see like this mining of local news as a way for basically like white kids to, 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 to steal stuff and then appropriate it and make stuff. And do you think we need more of a, a more of a protection around likeness rights here? Cause that, that's sort of what I think you're getting at the heart at. Absolutely. Um, I do think there needs to be a reconsideration of likeness laws and, and intellectual property laws. And um, I think Antoine Dotson in particular, I know he owns 50% of the Bed Intruder song and the Gregory Brothers own the other half. Oh, okay. So he was able to make a little bit of money out of it, even though the whole thing happened without his consent. Um, but I think his sort of spiraling after the video has also been interesting because that financial security that he gained from the video, he sort of lost. And so you mm-hmm. see him selling a costume, Halloween costume featuring like an Afro wig and, and a tank top. So he just becoming the sort of caricature. Mm-hmm. And then you see him boxing the supposed um, bed intruder in a boxing match hosted by Kato Kalin. And it's turned into this sort of <laughs> circus. But I also think about like pioneers in any kind of field. And I think about the blues mus- musicians. And I think about people who are sort of the sacrificial lambs at the beginning before the intellectual property laws kind of work themselves out. And I keep thinking about this Jay-Z line where he says, we're overcharging them for what they did to the cold crush basically so that hip-hop artists sort of took back a little bit of the agency that they lost at the beginning when the genre was sort of first um, being established so I think my hope is that in 15 and 10 years or, or, or even less that people are able to own their likenesses and the intellectual property they create. I think that there's going to have to be also just a sea change in the way that we think about what we own. What is the connection between, you know, the most minute off the cuff invention that one might make and all the like value that can be extracted from it? And I mean, obviously, this is leaps and bounds ahead of someone like Antoine Dotson being interviewed on the news, but let's talk about title. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same like core of the idea. 
there are black musicians primarily who are creating music that is so 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 valuable and they're getting fucked over by their record companies this is what right. prince stood for and people don't like title i i think it's pretty fair to say that the general consensus around it is that like jay-z is like super greedy you know mm. why can't i just get all my music on spotify because spotify existed first and right. it's like mm. why don't you have any problem with the faceless white executives behind spotify wow, who yeah. are you're so right you know the percentages that they take from their artists are mm. just astronomical um and oh, it's awful yeah and i was so angry when i saw you know just the rush of support to an artist like taylor swift who's taking a stand that i generally agree with but i don't agree with the fact that like it's okay for her as a white woman to kind of like make mm -hmm. her stand about how much she's worth but when these black men primarily who have started title but you know i don't want to erase the fact that beyonce for example is mm -hmm. also a part owner are saying I mean, the cultural contributions that somebody like Jay-Z has made over the past 25 years are just, they're worth billions of dollars. And mm -hmm. so, yes, like, take control, take ownership. Um, in the case of Prince, own your master recordings. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, I mean, you actually, you, you totally reminded me of this thing that I had totally forgotten about, which is right around the same time that Taylor Swift was fighting Apple Music, because, like, she was doing her whole, like, I want to own everything thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, right before that, I'm pretty sure didn't Drake announce that he was going to do an an album exclusively through Apple Music and there are all these think pieces by like like let's let's be real like white white leaning tech websites that were like Drake just killed music forever because he decided to team up with an app to make an album and it's like well why like he he it was it was sort of like the same reaction mm -hmm. around like Beats headphones and Apple and all this stuff where it's like the minute black creators get involved like on the internet and like they try to like fight for ownership or control in some capacity it's the end of the world but then when white people do it it's like yeah good for you like finally saying yeah it. mm -hmm. it's the inverse of the authenticity paradox we want our black artists to be as authentic as possible to be as down as possible no matter how you know just astronomically famous they get and that mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense there comes a threshold where if you are worth a certain amount of money you can't just like continue to operate as if you know all of my cultural contributions are just like floating through the air and i can't own them mm -hmm. yeah. um so yeah i think that's where a lot of the dre backlash came from people being like oh like he's a sellout because we understand i think we're moving away from it now hopefully that hip-hop is this sacred thing that shouldn't be tainted by capitalism but the whole mm -hmm. thing is like we exist in a world that is capitalist and it's unfair for people to you know, the money's going to get made somehow, so let them make the money. That's my opinion around, you know, ownership and authenticity in specifically genres that are understood as black created, which are all of them, but that's Well, we'll lighten it up real quick for the very end. Uh, Katie and I have two, two kind of silly questions for you. We, we asked... Uh, Heaven and Tracy from another round, uh, these two questions uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we'd love to get your opinions on these. So if you could bring back one internet slang term that has been ruined by white people, what would it be? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking emoji face. Um, oh, duh, woke. Oh, that's, that's what good. I would bring back. <laughs> that's really good. 
what you mean uh, Matt McGorry isn't Woken Bay? <laughs> <laughs> He's the Woken Bay. I actually, bay. I'm 30% here for, for Matt McGorry. <laughs> but yeah, Woke is not, it's not something to disparage, I don't think. It's important to know what white supremacy is doing to your body, so. <laughs> <laughs> um for me, I can't even like think of one that I feel like should be resurrected because I just let them go. You know, <laughs> like as soon as it's on the internet, I let it go, and I just know that it doesn't belong to me anymore. Um, if it ever did, so um, I have a, a element of dis- detachment from from it already. <laughs> All right, we have two minutes left. Um, is the internet good or evil? <laughs> yeah, yeah, real simple. <laughs> Um, I think the internet is good. The internet gave me my job, <laughs> personally. But then also, the internet allows people to be creators who wouldn't be creators otherwise. That's a very optimistic view. Yeah, I like that's that. that's good. I'm in a good mood today. It was yeah. the bacon, egg, and cheese I had. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the internet is a fascinating place, and I think it's a, it's a good place because... Um, it's sort of just an arena for people to exchange ideas and to create and to um, just sort of reflect the zeitgeist. So I think it's a good place. Okay. All right. Well, All we, right. guys, we solved it. We yeah, solved we did it. it. <laughs> it is good. Which I have to say, I'm... Um, Sign relief because we do a podcast every week about the internet, so it sucks. It was just all bad. <laughs> right. Naila, Doreen, thank you so much for joining us. Bye, Ryan. Bye, Katie. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Ryan. Bye. Thanks again to Naila Orr and Doreen St. Felix. Uh, everyone, check out Doreen's new podcast that she's doing through MTV. It's called Speed Dial, and it's a weekly pop culture roundup, and um, it's just starting. I think it's going to be awesome. And, yeah, thanks to both of them for coming on. Yeah. It was a it was a really good talk, and I'm I'm very proud of us, Katie. I, I feel like we were we, – we tricked them into thinking that we were smart and thoughtful. Um, See, this is we, – we used the classic trick, and I would like to – teens, teens, gather around. <laughs> Uncle Katie's going to tell you a little secret. If you to talk life. to teens on this show more, <laughs> you're going to get put on a list. Like if you keep if you keep a, if you keep talking to children via our podcast, I'm going to put I'm you on a list. I'm spinning gold nuggets of wisdom here. Okay. Men's rights activists told me that this would happen. Kids, surround yourself with smart people, and people will think you're smart too. That's that's what me and Ryan are doing. Yeah. We, we got these other people to come on and talk about smart stuff, and then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Katie and Ryan had a really good episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we are not the only parts of this production that is responsible for a good episode, I suppose. Uh, I also want to thank our producer, Julia Furlan. If Julia Furlan was a better podcast, she would be... Does Ira Glass do fresh air? Is that what he does? No. Oh. No, he does. Uh, Terry Gross does fresh air, I think. If Eleanor Kagan was a podcast, she would be uh, the the uh, uh, the night the Night Vale one. Hi, it's Night Vale. Mm-hmm. You're you're here at Night Vale. That one. She'd be that one. Yeah. Um, if Meg Kramer was a podcast, she'd be a podcast I just made up right now called "What's Up with Meg," and it would be just Meg talking about her life, just Meg stuff. If Paul Russ was a podcast, 
He would be my favorite podcast, Who Weekly, about D-list celebrities. Oh, that's good. If If you guys want to check out that podcast, by the way, I wrote a theme song for it, and I (laughs) sing it, too. I know exactly what Jenna would be. What would she be? If Jenna was a podcast, she would be Joel Osteen's podcast. Oh, my God. about God and Christian life. Yeah, she would. And loving Jesus. Or she would be like one of those like SEO podcasts that's like (laughs) how to get more out of your website with SEO. And speaking of our favorite Joel Osteen slash SEO expert, Jenna Weiss-Berman is leaving BuzzFeed. And not that any of you know or care. She's dead to me. Dead, dead to me. You hear that, Jenna? I hope you're listening to this right now. You're dead. R.I.P. Yeah. You see your grave? This is me peeing on it. That's using right. Using one of those weird funnels that they sell, uh, like at on weird websites for women to pee standing up. That's me peeing oh, on your grave. Oh, Sheenus? <laughs> is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called Sheenus. It's the thing. And that's right. Yeah, Jenna that's Weiss amazing. is leaving is leaving Internet Explorer. She's leaving BuzzFeed because uh, it turns out she's been spending the last couple of months shaving down her spine to become <laughs> a goat person. She's gonna wear like those prosthetic goat legs and live in the hills with goats, uh, and like that's what she's gonna do, I guess. So that's weird. Um, yeah, no, it's actually really sad. Uh, she she was offered a wonderful opportunity to become the producer of Joel Austin's podcast, <laughs> and because of her commitment to her Christian lifestyle, she is uh, she you know felt in her heart that it was the right thing to do. Yeah. We wish her the best. God bless, you know. And um, yeah, everyone, uh, check out her work on Joel Austin's podcast. Yeah, she's uh, she's gonna be doing uh, a segment about what it's like to be a Catholic goat person and live in the hills. <laughs> And love Jesus and wear a prosthetic suit that allows you to walk like a goat. You know, I'm excited. I'm excited for another wonderful installment of this very highbrow, very scholarly show that we do every week. Yeah, there's a vine of a guy taking a whiz in an airport. (laughs) 